All right, tonight we look here at chapter 2, and we begin looking at seven churches that were mentioned in chapter 1, and uh, we saw there in chapter 1 that Christ himself is standing in the midst of his churches, and it's a glorious picture and reminder of the fact that the churches who were suffering, the churches who were being persecuted, uh, Jesus is going to send them a message through John that says, hey, I am in your midst. I'm standing in your midst. I'm actually holding you in my hands. As he said, I hold the seven stars in my hands. And that's glorious for us to know. And that's the message of Revelation to us today. He, he not only observes those churches, he not only cares about those churches, he holds them accountable, as we're going to see today especially. He cares about what they do and what they don't do. Um, and so he, he comforts them, and yet he corrects them. And, and there's a pattern as we, we look at these, these messages to the seven churches that, that are just timeless for us. But ac- according to chapters 2 and 3, this is, the, this is the sobering part of this that I want us to grab at the beginning. According to chapters 2 and 3, it's possible for churches to disappear because he comes and removes the, their candlestick. And he, and he mentions that. Uh, that threat that he will remove the candlestick, meaning that the church, particular that local church, will go out of existence. His church as a whole will never go out of existence. He promised that. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church overall, but individual churches can fall into error, sin, and heresy, and I believe lose the, the lampstand. And uh, it's, it's vital for us to take this seriously as we enter into these, this, this study. So, so Richard Phillips says in his commentary, few believers have given serious study to these chapters, and few churches would highlight these as guiding passages from their life uh, and ministry. Yet Yet the Christ who speaks in these chapters continues to stand in the midst of his lampstands, continues to reign as the sovereign of his churches, and continues to hold the stars of the churches in his hands, because the exalted Christ continues to proclaim his priorities to the church through these seven messages, Christians should study Revelation chapter 2 and 3 with special care and respond with reverent obedience. So I think it's pretty fitting, the fact that this is still relevant to us today, because even though those seven churches were particularly mentioned in this, this revelation, this letter of revelation, we know that the issues are timeless, and therefore Christ is still sovereign over his church, and therefore these messages are for us today. We should take them just as serious. So chapters 2 and 3 contain these seven messages that we've talked about. Now, some would say seven letters to the churches, but that's a mis- misnomer. Why? Because there's one revelation here, right? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, and he wrote all these things down in one letter and sent that off. There are seven messages to seven different churches within this one letter. And that's what we're looking at here first, these seven messages to these seven churches. And, and we're going to see a particular pattern that repeats among all seven. Now, tonight we're only going to cover one, but we're going to see it's a particular pattern that kind of repeats. We see an uplifting word to begin with. Then we see an encouraging word of commendation. And then we see a, a sober word of correction. And then they all end with a promising word of conquering, conquering, overcoming for for us as believers. So let's look at Ephesus. That's the first first church that a message goes to, the church of Ephesus. So look here in verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, that's that's the greeting. And, And by the way, all of the greetings to each church begin with a portion of the attributes that John mentioned in chapter one. This is exactly what was mentioned in chapter one. As John described Jesus, the Lamb of God, he begins with one of those attributes for each church. So here we see he's the one who holds the stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And he's writing it who? To the church of Ephesus. Now, what about Ephesus? What is Ephesus? Ephesus was a famous city. It had a very large harbor and therefore made for a a lot of busyness. It was a cosmopolitan type city, busy marketplace, and also had the distinct, um, you know, notoriety for having the great temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the other thing that goes along with this, though, with the big city, right, is the sinfulness, (laughs) the immorality, Ephesus was known as a very immoral city. That temple, as many of the pagan temples had temple prostitutes, would would give basically indulgences for other immoral acts as they would receive payment to give those type of indulgences for immorality. So immorality would run kind of rampant here in this place, especially sexual immorality, being excused, being accepted in the culture, and even slipping into acceptance within some of the churches. And so, you know, again, the ancient philosopher uh, Heraclitus said this, he said, no one can live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. So Heraclitus lived in Ephesus and therefore he wept over it. And yet Paul founded that church. Now, if we remember in, in the book of Acts, we see that Paul originally founded the church of Ephesus. And he actually ministered there for three years, you know, building up and training leaders. Timothy came along and oversaw the church for many years. And then after Paul's death, John, the apostle, pastored that church. And so again, that's what I said in the beginning remarks, uh, beginning around 66 AD, John was the pastor there at Ephesus. So his love for this church is real. Um, As he's rotting on the Isle of Patmos, we mentioned that he's probably looking northward to where Ephesus would be and thinking about them. And now Jesus gives him these messages for churches and begins with a place close to home, Ephesus. And so let's notice what it says. What is Jesus going to say to John's home church? Verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then I want to read verse 6, which goes along with these verses. He says, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what we see here, this glorious news, I mean, think about it. If if Christ were going to give our church a message, I would like to hear these words. Wouldn't you? I mean, this this idea of saying, I know your works. So they were a working church. Jesus acknowledges that. What I mean by that is they preached the gospel and they built up the church via seeing people come to know Christ and discipling them as as a church does. A church should be working that way. He says, your patient endurance He hears of your patient endurance. And and, and that speaks to the fact that they stood up to the pressure, 
to conform to the culture around them. Look at those words where he says, he says, you have, you have endured your endurance, right? You, you cannot bear what's evil. You cannot bear what's false. You call out false teachers. You call out false apostles. You endure patiently and bear up for my name's sake. That's a huge statement there. He's telling this church that I have heard and I have watched, I see, that you are bearing up under the pressure to conform to the culture around you for my name's sake. So you're standing for my name even when it hurts. How do we stand up for the name of Christ? What does that mean to stand up for somebody's name's sake, for the sake of their name? It means we honor their authority in our lives and, and we humble ourselves to their teaching and we obey it. We, we, we live out our lives in accordance to Christ's teachings rather than the teachings of our culture. And of course that's going to get us in trouble. Every time that we decide to say, you know what, culture, you may say this is good, but my Savior says that's bad. You may say what I'm doing, what, what, what I'm standing on. The culture will say what we stand on, the morality of God's word. They'll say that's evil. It's, think about it, how many times have you seen on, on social media, somebody is trying to, to, to make the point that life begins at conception, that God has made all life valuable and precious, and, and, and we're trying to encourage people to live by God's morals, and then people say, that's, you're so condescending, you're so mean. What about the poor people, the rights, you're hurting, you're hateful, that's, that's, guilt, that's guilt speech, blah, blah, blah. But here's what Jesus says about that. There's a time when the church has got to stand and not conform to the culture, out of love for the culture. And, and I talk about that Sunday, we're going to see it again today. We're going to see that Revelation really does build on that theme that this message from Jesus to his church is to, is to encourage them to suffer well. That's it. Why? Because he knows the culture is diametrically opposed to everything that he stands for and that he is. He is light. They are dark. And so he understands his people will also be persecuted standing up against false teachers, so forth. I, I like what Ignatius said about this. Ignatius of Antioch was one of the early church leaders, and uh, in the second century, um, he said this. He wrote a letter, by the way, to the, uh, to the church in Ephesus, the very same church that John wrote to. This is just a few years after the death of John, and yet Ignatius, the early church father, wrote this to, the, that, to that church years after John wrote this letter to them. They were still faithful. Ignatius said, you all live according to truth, and no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do so much as listen to, to anyone, or you do not so much as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Jesus Christ in truth. You don't listen to anything except them speaking the truth about who Christ is. And the church has always been called to stand for the exclusivity of truth and the truth of God's word. Now, I'm, I'm gonna, this, is what, this is what Jesus is encouraging them about. They stood for the exclusivity of the truth of God's word, the truth of the message of the gospel. And it's that position, that position of standing for the exclusivity of the gospel, the exclusivity of Christ, that got the early church persecuted in the first century. And it continues to do so today. What I mean is, here it is, listen to this. And see if you get this. Salvation is not merely through Christ. So we all, 
We all understand that salvation is through Christ, right? We would all admit, amen, salvation is through Christ. But here's the problem. And you could say that all day long, by the way, as a first century Christian and not be thrown into the lion's den. You could say that all day long. Salvation is of Jesus. You could, you're free to say that all day. You know why? Because they would also say, oh, and of Jupiter and of Zeus. And they don't care. As long as you're, if you're eclectic with them, they'll welcome many gods. So you can say all day long, salvation is of Jesus. It's when you say it's only through Christ that there's a problem. Do you see that? Salvation is not merely through Christ. It is only through Christ. That's a very important distinction that we have to understand as believers. That's what you must believe. It is not just that he's a way, and I'll take him along with something else. If you're trusting Christ along with your many other gods, you're not a believer. You've not been saved by his grace. He is not your master, and you are not his servant. It's only when you forsake all else and all others and exclusively claim that Christ is Lord and Lord alone. And when we don't do that, we're not trusting him. And when we do that, we are hated by the culture. And that's what happened in early Rome. That's what's going on here. And that's what happens in the church today. When we, when we exclusively talk about truth and, and we're not open to the, the postmodern idea that, oh no, there are many, many truths and there's not one truth. There's not just one exclusive truth. But when we do stand on the fact that God's word tells us there is objective truth and it's him and him alone and his word alone, we begin to, to lose favor, not just among the culture, but among the false teachers within the church. And again, all these things are what that church is dealing with. I just, I just want us to understand that that very battle that has begun in the first century with the church, that Jesus is writing to this church in Ephesus about and trying to encourage them, keep standing, do not conform to the culture. Keep standing for my truth. I see your works. I see your faithfulness. Keep on keeping on. Keep on standing for the exclusive truth. That's always been the battle through the ages, right up to the 1887. What is 1887? Five years before Charles Haddon Spurgeon dies. He's old. He's older. He died kind of young. But he's eight, in 1887, by this point, Charles Spurgeon's kidneys are failing. He has battles with gout. Grave depression. So he's in his latter years, in his twilight years, when he should be kind of tapering off, resting. In those latter years, beginning in 1887, the prince of preachers went to war with those of his own denomination when they began to drift away from the truth. Instead of just waiting for somebody else to do it or saying, I've paid my dues, I'm done, he said, I, I won't be silent. And he published papers denouncing the Baptist Union who were promoting a revised doctrinal statement that Spurgeon believed, and he was correct, undermined the orthodox Christian truths that the church has stood for for 2,000 years. Four big errors that Spurgeon pointed out during his time that can sound very familiar, a denial of the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. You know what that is? That, that started back in the Garden of Eden when Satan said to Eve, Hath God said? Has God really said? 
And that's been going on ever since. Not trusting the sufficiency and the infallibility of the Word of God. The second thing he saw was the denial of the necessity and substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement. This is back in 1887 when Spurgeon has the battle guys who were saying, well, you know, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, isn't that, that's kind of bloody, that's kind of gross, that's not really necessary. Spurgeon was battling that in 1887. You know, in 2022, we have the same stuff entering into mainstream Christianity. Theologians, professors, and pastors all saying that the substitutionary atonement of Christ is not necessary. The denial of the existence of an eternal hell and the affirmation of universalism. Those four things were, were being battled. They're being battled today. The same idea. They go together pretty much. When you deny the atonement of Christ, the need for him to die for sinners, you open the box for, he's going to save everybody. It's universal. doesn't matter. He's going to love everybody. So there's the problems. Spurgeon saw that, and he, and, and he stood in his day. Look what he wrote. I, just want, I want to read this. Look, look what Spurgeon wrote. An aged, sickly man trusting in, in God's truth alone. He said, a new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea usurps pulpits, which were erected for the gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of Scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into fiction and the resurrection into a myth. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brothers and maintain a confederacy with them. And he went on, of course, to fight this. He was voted down. The, 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 the motion passed a, a few years later. He continued to fight. And they voted ultimately him out of the Baptist Union. And he died a year later. This is the great Charles Spurgeon, who up to that time, up to that time was without a doubt the most popular speaker in all of Europe and growing in popularity in America. And yet, as he died, broken over the sin that was creeping into the church, he was basically ostracized and ultimately kicked out of the very union that he had served in for years. Why? For the sake of Christ's name. That's what Spurgeon was serving. He wasn't serving these other people. He wasn't serving the culture. He wasn't serving a denomination. He was serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so, folks, this is what we must remember as Revelation encourages us to stand and not conform. We're not in this to win popularity contests and be liked by the culture. We're here and we're in this to save their souls from hell. That's what we're in this for. And yet so many times we get this idea that if I say this, they won't like me. And if I don't go along with this, they, they'll think we're old-fashioned, angry people or silly or whatever. But folks, we've got to put all that aside. We've got to be hated for Christ's sake. That's what he said would happen anyway, right? We'll be called fools, Paul said, right? Paul said, I'm counted as a fool for Christ's sake all the day long. And he said, that's okay. The preaching of the gospel, Paul said, is foolishness to those who are perishing. So why do it, Paul? Because I want to see them in heaven. I do not want to see them under the wrath of God. So though they hate me, 
for telling them the truth, as that verse says, you hate me because I tell you the truth. That's what Jesus said. You hate me because I tell you the truth. And they will. But we're not here to be liked by them. We're literally here to rescue them. And we're here to be loved and honored by our Father. That's where I want to seek honor. I want to hear God say, well done. Well done. That should be everybody's heart here. As we live in a culture that has forsaken God, we are his ambassadors. Willing to throw our reputations aside and our lives, if need be, for the sake of the cross and the gospel. Now, let me hurry. I'm sorry I got on that, but no, I'm not. I mean, that's part of the message, but sorry it took so long. But look at this. Not only do we see this word of commendation, he commends them for their unwavering commitment to truth, even in the midst of a hostile culture which derides them and, and counts them as useless idiots. That's what the culture will, will do, right, to Christians. But he, but he commends them. But now he gives a word of correction. Because after you've heard that, you think, wow, this church has got it all going for them, right? They love the truth. They stand against false teaching. They know doctrine. How could they not? Who are their former pastors? Oh, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, John the Apostle. Yeah, obviously this church is grounded in the truth. And they love it. And they're willing to throw all else away for it. And yet, look at this. Verse 4. A word of correction from Christ. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, that's an amazing statement, but it's very true. And it's amazing to me how this correlates with my sermon on Sunday, but it does. If you were here Sunday, this is the same idea. We can speak truth. We can know truth in our mind. We can have all the doctrinal uh, ducks in a row and all the theological I's and T's crossed. And yet, if we do not love, it's useless. And so this is powerful. This is what's happened to this church in Ephesus. They have truth. They stand against error. They work hard, faithfully for the name of Christ. And yet, they've lost the love that they first had. Two, two meanings here. They've lost the love that they had for others, for people, for each other. That's one way to see this. The other way to see this is that they've lost their, the love they had for Christ himself. And this happens. And both of these things we need to take seriously. Both of these things, I think, are legitimate interpretations here. It's easy for us to learn about Christ and to learn the knowledge about him because we began with a great love for him because he saved us. But over the years, as we just keep filling our head with that knowledge, the love for him can be usurped with just the knowledge and facts about him. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. And we cannot let that happen. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Paul hits on this when he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So that's, that's powerful, but that's what Jesus is reminding the church of Ephesus. You've got all these other things, but you've lost your love. The love that you used to serve me with, the love that you served each other with, that's gone. Thank you for standing for truth. Thank you for knowing doctrine. Thank you for knowing and, and representing me well theologically. But my issue with you is there's no love. Verse 5, though, is a gracious remedy. God's remedy for that. What is it? 
Remember. (laughs) Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And repent. And do the works you did at first. It's interesting, isn't it? Continue to stand for the truth. Continue to love doctrine. But do it with the love you had for me at first. Let my love, let your, let, let your love for me and you, my people drive you to that knowledge and to that fervent, fervent defending of truth. I love this. He says, now, now this is the, 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 the most sobering part of this. So look at this. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So this is very somber, very, very pointed. Unless you repent, your witness will go out. Amazing to think about, isn't it? That, that a church that the Apostle Paul planted, that Timothy worked in, that John the Apostle pastored, that that church could go out of, of existence? Folks, If that church can go out of existence, any local church can fall into sin and disobedience and heresy and lose the power of God and the power of the Spirit to be a witness for Christ. So again, what is this? What what is all this about? Now, what does this mean to remember, to remember where I have fallen from? Literally, I think it's just a humbling call, right? Remember where you were when I found you, Jesus is saying. Remember why you loved me in the first place. You've fallen from that. So this is a call to humble gratitude and acknowledgement of our total dependency on Christ. A return to that. A return to humble gratitude. And our acknowledgement that everything we have, we have from Christ. And that builds this love that much more, that fervency. No, it's you, Lord. You're the reason. You're the one I love. Look what Luke 7, 41 says. Jesus kind of uses this parable to explain, I think, this very principle. He tells a a short parable. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon Peter answered, Well, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So the idea is if somebody does a great favor, they they forgive you of so much that you were accountable for, right? But it's gone, wiped away. You're you're grateful. But here's what I want to say. We, 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 he uses the example to say, well, one guy only owed 50, but another guy owed 500. And he forgave both of them. Which one loved him more? I'm sure they were both appreciative, but obviously this one had this great debt uh, uh, over their head, and they're just so much more grateful. But I want to say this. Any sin against an infinite God puts us infinitely in debt a debt that we will never pay and we will suffer for eternity. Whether we've got 50 sins or 5,000 sins or one sin against that holy God, we are all equally, eternally in debt and will suffer because of it. So when Christ forgives any of us, we're all 
the one who, be, who should be rejoicing the greatest. Lord, we are amazed at your forgiveness. Our gratitude should just flow for, for, for the truth, out of the truth that I, who was under the eternal wrath of God, that has been wiped away, and I now have eternal glory. That's the kind of love Jesus is saying. That, that's where you need to return to, that you are what you are by the grace of God. You didn't deserve this. And yet it's been wiped away. That gratitude causes you to love and not leave that love. It's when we get pious and pompous and forget that we really needed help. We think we've arrived. We think, here I am. I've been a Christian for all these years. I know all the stuff. We get self-righteous and pious and then also bitter and judgmental at everybody else. That, we've lost the love, the first love. We can never leave the place of total dependency on Christ. And again, I tell you, as I did Sunday, the only way to do that is to every morning when you wake up before your feet hit the floor, preach the gospel to yourself, remembering that it was your sin that nailed Christ to the cross in the first place. And you must have his grace. And you'll be grateful. You'll be in love with him daily before you have a chance to get proud of yourself and walk around in this world. Your focus is on the one who loved you more than you should have ever been loved. But now look at this. These all end kind of similarly, as I said. So here's where they all, all seven. Now all seven messages don't have the same content. Some churches never get a rebuttal. They are only praised. And some get no praise. <laughs> but they all end with an overcoming statement of glorious conquering and this is found in verse 7. And here's what Jesus ends with. He calls them to repent and, and, and remember where they came from and, and rest on him alone and see the glory of his love for them. And by the way, I meant to say this. Once we do that, once we love Christ for his grace towards us and we realize we've been forgiven much, now I can love my brothers and sisters the way I should because I realize that they need the same grace that I needed and I'm no better. And, and we love each other together and serve each other. And even those who I'm preaching to then, like I said Sunday, we, we love them. We pray for them. Yes, we hate the sin. Yes, we hate their actions while they're blatantly thumbing their face and their, their nose at God. But we pray, God save them. But look what Jesus says in verse 7 now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Wow. Glorious, glorious word of conquering for us. Now here it is. I want to say one thing. The fact that he addresses the churches in the plural here, and the fact that the problems identified here are common to churches throughout the ages makes it clear that this letter, this, this whole book of Revelation, has a universal relevance to all churches of all ages. So this is for us. And what's he saying to a church of any age? By the way, we are not unique folks in our time. This is common to man. These temptations, these trials, these sufferings, these persecutions, the sin of our land, sin is not new. It's just new to every generation that experiences it. And they think, wow, it's the worst I've ever seen it. Of course it's the worst you've ever seen it. 
It's the first time and only time you're going to see it. But it was the worst your grandparents saw it and the great-grandparents. And, and right on back to Ephesus here, and then right on back to Babylon, right on back to Egypt, right on back to Mesopotamia, right on back to the day where, where Cain took a rock and beat his brother's brains in, in the book of Genesis. I mean, folks, it's always been. Sin has always been. But so has this promise that those who persevere and overcome, you will eat of the tree of life in paradise. See that? That's, that's where we rest. Now, what is that saying? I've got to overcome and then I'll make it? Of course not. We understand. Again, this is why we must have a systematic theology of all the Bible and understand that soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, how are we saved? That doctrine is clearly taught throughout the Bible. Not of works, lest any man should boast, but by grace through faith who have been saved through Christ's merit, through Christ's work. So we understand it's not saying that based on all of the Bible. That's just an interpretative truth a hermeneutical truth. How do I interpret the Bible? If there's a verse that seems to be contradicting every other verse of the Bible, guess which verse is wrong <laughs> or which interpretation, not the verse, your interpretation of that verse is wrong. Because the whole Bible is the commentary on the Bible and that majority rule, that's, that's how we understand scripture. We don't take one verse out of context and build our whole theology. We take all of the Bible systematically so what is this saying that he who perseveres to the end will eat of the fruit? Here's the glorious promise of Christ saving me is that I will persevere. He's basically saying you will persevere. <laughs> all of you will persevere who are in me and you will eat, that, eat of that eternal life. That's all that means. Eating of the tree of, of life in paradise simply means I will live forever. But not by my own merit. By the merit of Christ. How do I know? Well, Romans 8, 37. I want to put this together. Look at Romans 8, 37, 39 through 39. Paul's talking about persecutions that come, trials that come. Is any of this going to take me out of the kingdom of heaven? Temptations, trials, tragedy, whatever. Demons. He mentions all that. Principalities, powers. Are these things able to separate me from God? And then in verse 37, he says, no, <laughs> in all these things, look at this, we are more than conquerors. That's the same word Jesus used back there in Revelation when he said, all those who persevere to the one who conquers, he said, right? I will grant the ability to eat from the tree of life. And in verse 37 here, it says that we, Paul's saying, we are more than conquerors. That means we're more than the ones who conquer. We don't conquer. We're more than that through him who loved us. So again, we're conquerors, but we're more than it's, it's more than us doing it. No, we're conquerors through him who loved us. And because it was his love for us that we've already talked about and his work on our behalf, not just on the cross, not just his perfect holy life for three and a half years or 33 years on this earth, living a perfect life, keeping God's commands in my place. But also as my high priest, ever living to pray for me, that there is one who prays for me throughout eternity. I will never be separated. I'm more than a conqueror because of Christ. 
Do you see that picture, the more than conquerors? I always wonder what that meant. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? How can you more than win? If you win, you win, right? How can you be more than a conqueror? And then, I, then it dawns on me, wait a minute. If I conquer, that would be, I would be a conqueror. I'm, I'm not, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm not doing it. Christ does it. And it's more than conquering because it never ends. His merit for me, his life for me, his sacrificial um, uh, uh, intercessory prayer for me never ends. He ever lives to make intercession for me. Therefore, he's able to, able to save me to the uttermost. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. It means to be in Christ. And Christ is saying, since you're in me, you will eat of the tree of life. You're more than conquerors. Because Paul says, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including you, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that something? There's our hope. Our hope is in Christ. And I love these folks. I feel bad, but they'll, they'll tell me, some of the folks that believe you can lose this, your salvation, and they'll say, well, I think Paul, I said, what do you do with this verse? And they'll say, well, you know, Paul, he named a lot of things there. Yeah, he did. Powers, principalities, let's talk about demons, angels, um, fallen angels, height, death, life, death. And then he says, anything else in all creation? And they'll say, yeah, I get that. But though none of that can take you away from Jesus, you can. You can choose to walk away. You can choose to leave him. Folks, that means that you are more powerful than everything mentioned in this verse. Including God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I just want to nicely say, do we not see that that's blasphemy? And that that idea is heresy? To say that, that, that God is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all these things, giving us hope, and then we have the audacity to say, but I'm stronger than you. <laughs> what? You see, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, even my own, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Amen? And there's our hope. That's what this letter is all about. For a suffering church, the message is this. The Lamb of God wins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that sets our hearts free from the lies of our own delusion <laughs> and the lies of a world that, that don't even know you. So Father, thank you for the truth of your exclusive word, that it is exclusive, that Christ is an exclusive savior. He is the only one. And if we are in him, we are saved forevermore. So give us the grace, knowing that since, since you arm us with this truth, your purpose in that is that we will leave this place and boldly stand for you will stand the persecution, the name-calling, the belittling, the losing of our reputations, all these silly temporal things, Father, because our eyes are full of gratitude to the one who took away all debt and gave us all eternity. Give us that grace, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.